Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Many years ago, Riley Knight completed a degree in history. This proved to be a bad move as it was absolutely useless for him. Until now, here's some half-assed history. What's going on, mate? Great to have you along for some more half-assed history this week on the agenda. Getting having a chat about King Henry VIII of England, one of the most famous English or British monarchs, if not perhaps the most famous, and for very good reason. English as a language and as a culture has become a very dominant part of the modern world, from the global hegemony of the British Empire to English being more or less the international global lingua franca, the language that you and I speak and understand. And Henry VIII is a toweringly important figure in English history as a monarch that completely changed the course that his realm would take over the following centuries. Henry VIII changed England forever. He greatly increased the role and the power of the monarch in English political affairs. He expanded the territorial ambitions of England. And of course, he completely upended English religious orthodoxy by pulling his kingdom out of Catholicism and into the Protestant Reformation, with consequences that would echo for decades, centuries after he died. And on top of all of this, he found the time to get married no fewer than six times. Very famously, Henry VIII had six wives, three Catherines, two Anne's and a Jane, and I'm sorry to say that some of these women were met with rather unpleasant fates. There's the, there's the old rhyme that helps us remember what happened to Henry VIII's wives. Uh, divorced, beheaded, died. Divorced, beheaded, survived. But I know that everyone who listens to this podcast loves a good old-fashioned well, actually. And so I can tell you right now that this rhyme is not completely correct. But we'll get to that. How's that for a hook, huh? How's that for a hook? We've got them now, I can tell you. Anyway, as ever, um, so much to get across today. Thanks go to Alert listeners Cooper Spence and Luke Matchin for their suggestions to chat about Henry VIII, his, his life, his legacy, and of course his six wives. So let's get underway. Let's kick things off. Here we go with the story of one of the most famous monarchs in English and British history, Henry VIII. Off we go. We're going all the way back here. We're going all the way back to the 28th of June, 1491, when young Henry was born to King Henry VII of England and his wife, Elizabeth of York. Henry was their third kid and their second son. His elder brother, Arthur, was the uh, the heir to the English throne at the time of Henry's birth. Um, and I'll tell you this, Henry, he was out of the gates like a greyhound too. Very, very busy young fella. At the age of just two years old, he was appointed as the Lord Warden of the Chinqua Ports. And Constable of Dover Castle, not bad, not even bloody toilet trained and already a Lord Warden. Look at this kid go. But then on top of that, at three years old, he was appointed as the Earl Marshal of England and the Lord Lieutenant of Ireland. Poor bloody kid. All he wants to do is sit around and play with his crayons and his toy cars and that one, you know, the 
the rug or the mat that we all had as kids. You know, the, the one with the, like the roads and little town on it. Why did we? Why do we all have that rug? Anyway, um, honestly, aside from these lofty positions that he was given, we actually don't know too much about Henry's upbringing. Not a lot of attention was paid to him by historians uh, at, at the time of his youth because. As a second son, he just wasn't really expected to do much. He wasn't in he wasn't expected to inherit. He was like another 21st century prince that shares his name. He was the spare. Although the modern Prince Henry does seem to be sticking with the with, with just the one wife so far. He hasn't he hasn't yet beheaded anyone. Um but we do know that Henry was there when his brother Arthur married Catherine of Aragon in 1502, the daughter of Isabella I of Castile, episode 227, get across it. Uh, and this marriage was put in place to secure an alliance between England and the, and the newly united Spain. However, in what will be a common thread, a common trend throughout this entire episode, this marriage didn't last. Royal marriages, what are they like? The gossip rags having a field day all the way back then. Uh, Prince Arthur... Sadly, he died just a few months after marrying Catherine. Now, lucky Henry VII had a spare, you're thinking. Young Prince Henry was now the heir apparent. He inherited a bunch of titles like the Prince of Wales. And to secure the alliance between England and Spain, his dad tried to marry him to Catherine of Aragon, Prince Arthur's widow. And this is where all the problems begin with Henry barely a teenager being promised to his brother's widow, although we're still years and years away from all of these issues actually coming to fruition. These are the seeds that were planted. We'll we'll, we'll get there in due course. Anyway, Henry VII died in 1509, and so young Prince Henry, just 17 years old, he became Henry VIII. And one of the first things that he does as king is go ahead and marry Catherine of Aragon. He's 17, she's 23. He marries his brother's widow. They, they were coronated together as king and queen in Westminster Abbey on the 23rd of June, 1509. Great big lavish ceremony, big celebrations, the works. And Henry began his reign as a coronated king by doing something that he was obviously very, very fond of doing. He rounded up some of his father's ministers and advisors and chopped off their heads. Chopping people's heads off became one of Henry VIII's favourite kingly activities. He sent a lot of people to the headsman, as we will come to, of course. Uh, Henry made it very clear from the jump that as king, he was not going to take any guff from anyone. He was a bloody king, mate. He was large and he was in charge. And and, and I do mean large. Um, While the prevailing image of Henry VIII comes from him later in life, when he was rather overweight... As a, as a young man, he was large in a different sense. He was an absolute unit. He was a specimen. Let me tell you, he's tall, broad, athletic, and handsome. He was a hunk and a half. I'll tell you that. And on top of this, he was also very intelligent. He had a first-rate education, of course, as the uh, as the son of a king. Uh, and so when he when he wasn't out hunting or jousting or playing royal tennis, loved a bit of tennis. Henry did. Uh, he was reading, writing, playing, or even composing music, uh, although he didn't write the folk song Green Sleeves, which is often mistakenly attributed to him. But look, he was the, he was the complete package. Honestly, he really was. He was sporty, artistic. He was good looking. This bloke would have never had to pay for Tinder Premium. Let me tell you, he would have had matches lining up around the block, around the palace. Um, and in fact, on that note, um, while his marriage to Catherine was a happy one, to begin with at least, Henry, he did have it away behind her back with a lot of other women. This wasn't unusual at the time. Powerful men back then usually had a a ton of mistresses, which was just 
more or less accepted by their wives. Horrific double standard. We'll talk about that more a little bit uh, a little bit later on the show. Uh, but Henry, yeah, no exception to this. He had heaps of side chicks, heaps and heaps of them. Uh, not that that stopped him finding the time for Catherine, however, because she became pregnant many, many times in the years after their wedding. But sadly, most of these pregnancies resulted in stillbirths or in infant deaths. The only child that survived to adulthood uh, was a little girl called Mary, born in 1516. Remember her? We'll we'll come back to her a little bit later on as well. But then in 1519, um, one of Henry's mistresses, Elizabeth Blount, she gave birth to a son that Henry actually acknowledged as his own, despite the son being, you know, quote unquote, illegitimate, um, because... He had no sons with Catherine. He began to legitimise this young kid that he had with one of his mistresses as his heir, Henry Fitzroy, as his young son was known. He was given aristocratic titles. He was given important government positions. He was he was prepared for leadership in many ways. And it really did look like for a while there that he might end up joining the line of succession. But then Henry Fitzroy simplified what could have been a very difficult political issue by just dying in 1533 before his old man, so that never came to anything. Anyway, Henry's reign would be defined in many ways by his issues with his issue. Thank you very much. Uh, As he wanted more than anything else, a son to name as his heir to facilitate a speedy and uncontroversial succession when he died. But he and Catherine never managed to have one. But... We'll put aside these problems for just one moment to talk about some of the other aspects of Henry's reign before coming back to the whole situation with his lack of sons and consequent abundance of wives. Because an often overlooked aspect of Henry's reign, probably because of the abundance of wives thing, was Henry's grand plans for the territorial expansion of his realm. Don't forget, the Hundred Years' War, episode 223, get across it, was still relatively recent memory for the English. Um, Henry still held a claim to France, a claim that the English wouldn't surrender for another 300 or so years. And so in 1511, just two years after taking the throne, Henry joined his father-in-law, Ferdinand II of Aragon, who was fighting the French as part of the Holy League, a military alliance set up by Pope Julius II. As if an English king ever needed an excuse to start fighting with the French, Henry, he got stuck straight into it. He was hoping to recover lands that had previously been ruled by the English, regions like Aquitaine. Um, But the campaign was a failure. It it, It did not go very well for the English or the Spanish, for that matter, and it strained relations between the two kings. Uh, Meanwhile... Up in Scotland, King James IV, he's up to no good. He he was also, incidentally, Henry VIII's brother-in-law as he had married Margaret Tudor, Henry's sister. So just one big, great bowl of spaghetti, this uh, this royal family tree. Uh, anyway, like any good Scot, James IV, he didn't waste an opportunity to give the English a pasting. And so while Henry was busy with France, James invaded England to the north. But this proved to be a bad move because James was killed in the fighting and the Scots were defeated. Ultimately, from all of these campaigns in France and Scotland and wherever else, nothing much changed. Uh, Not much territory changed hands, and then a bunch of the involved parties just died. Pope Julius II died in 1513, the French King Louis XII died in 1515, and then Ferdinand II died in 1516. So the conflict just kind of fizzled out without much to show for it as far as England was concerned, although it did mean that Henry himself, on 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 a personal level, gained a fair bit of favour with the Catholic Church for his efforts in fighting as part of this Holy League for the sake of the Pope. For much of his reign, 
Henry really was in the good graces of various popes as a as a as a pious and 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 ardent Catholic. Uh, in 1521, for instance, he wrote a treatise called Assertio Septum Sacramentorum, or Defense of the Seven Sacraments, which was a spirited defense of papal authority. And this little effort earned him the title of Fide Defensor from Pope Leo X, Defender of the Faith. Look at him go. Henry's doing a great job here getting in the, in the Catholic Church's good graces. This is all very interesting considering what's coming down the line when it comes to Henry's relationship with the papacy in Rome. But we'll get to that. Uh, but also, while we're talking about uh, his ambitions for territorial expansion, it's not just, it's not just France that Henry had his eye on. Uh, we've got to talk about places like Ireland. Henry was the first English monarch to style himself as the King of Ireland rather than just the Lord of Ireland. Uh, this took place much later in his career. The title was first announced in 1542. But issues with Irish sovereignty cropped up throughout Henry's entire reign. Like, uh, like more or less anything to do with Irish politics, it is a very complicated and very messy story. But the long and the short of it is this. By the time of Henry VIII, England had authority over the entire island of Ireland in name but only over part of it in practice. And Henry wanted to change this, and so he expanded English authority in areas of Ireland that was still very much under the control of traditional tribal chieftains. And this didn't sit well with the, with the chieftains, as you can imagine. It triggered a series of conflicts on the island between Irish and English, and also between Irish and Irish, for that matter. And eventually, Henry decided that you catch more flies with honey than with vinegar. He stopped the fighting and then used his break with the Catholic Church as an excuse to restructure the political offices of largely Catholic Ireland, make it a formal English possession, and then later on announce his claim to the Kingdom of Ireland in his own right. English and British monarchs would claim the title of King or Queen of Ireland all the way through to the 1930s, and even today, Charles III is styled as the King of Great Britain and Northern Ireland. So even this decision of Henry's has had huge and lasting consequences as the impossible complexities of Irish politics are, of course, still dominating the region today. Finally, in 1535, uh, Henry also oversaw the official annexation of Wales, bringing England and Wales together as one single nation. I've, I've always felt sorry for Wales, dominated by the English as they have been for so long, so often overlooked, not represented on the Union flag, despite having the coolest individual flag within the UK. Uh, but again, it goes to show that the reign of Henry VIII had important, lasting consequences for the future of the British Isles with the annexation of Wales and the... Uh, Jeez, I don't know. What, what, I don't know what you'd call it. The seizure of Ireland? I don't know. Anyway. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with Plush Care. Plush Care accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. If you have a lot of mailing to do, stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. Use the stamps.com mobile app to mail everything you need to keep your business running with up to 89% off USPS and UPS. 
Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Use code PROGRAM for a special offer. That's Stamps.com, code PROGRAM. It's now time to turn our attention back to the most famous and most important aspect of the reign of Henry VIII, his marriages and their consequences. And so we return now to his marriage to Catherine of Aragon, one that, as you remember, started off happily enough, but ended up souring as the years passed. And this was for one principal reason. This marriage had not produced a male heir for Henry. And the blame for this, according to Henry, fell at the feet of Catherine. Ridiculous, of course, but that's how the world worked. If a woman couldn't give birth to a son, it was her fault. It wasn't anything to do with anyone else. Anyway, in light of the fact that uh, his marriage to Catherine of Aragon hadn't produced any sons, uh, in around 1525, Henry, he starts to look at his options to secure an heir that could inherit without any problems. So he sits down, he has to think about things, and he comes up with three different options that he can take here. Number one. Number one is fully legitimise the, the, the son I mentioned before, the, the son that he had with his previous mistress, that kid Henry Fitzroy that we talked about before. But this, this came with a whole host of other issues. It would need the approval of the Pope. And when Henry Fitzroy took the throne, there would be pretenders coming out of the woodwork to challenge Fitzroy when he inherited. So this did not seem like an ironclad way to, uh, to ensure that there was going to be a smooth succession. Number two. Number two, Henry could try to marry off his daughter, Mary, and hope that she had a son before Henry died so he could pass the throne down to his grandson directly. Although around the time that he's thinking about this in 1525, Mary is just nine years old. So this is not a plan that would have you know, been able to get underway very swiftly. And so there's option number three. Number three is to get rid of Catherine altogether and try again with someone else. Bear in mind, Catherine is 40 by this stage. They've been married 16 years. And as I'm sure you know, it, the older a woman gets, the tougher it is for her to become pregnant. So uh, with all of this in mind, with the problems involved, with option one, the fact that Henry Fitzroy was born out of wedlock and would have a lot of challenges if, uh, if he were to try to inherit the throne, uh, with the impossibility of the long-term timeline of, uh, of option number two, Henry decided to go with option number three and started looking for ways out of his marriage with Catherine. And I'll tell you this, it took a bloody long time for him to find one. Eight years, in fact, it took until the marriage ended. But the marriage did not, as the rhyme may have made you think, the marriage did not end in divorce. No, no, it was instead rather with an annulment, which is a very different thing to a divorce. What's the difference? An annulment essentially says that the marriage never actually existed in the first place, while, on the other hand, a divorce ends a marriage that did exist. And this is a very important distinction because the annulment of Henry's marriage with Catherine of Aragon would go on to have colossally far-reaching consequences, not just for England, but for everywhere that England and Britain projected their political power in the coming centuries, which is to say a lot of different places as the British Empire grew to become the largest empire in human history. Anyway, the annulment. 
Divorce just wasn't an option. To this day, it is still forbidden to Catholics 500 years later, and so Henry VIII decided to exploit a loophole to get out of his marriage with Catherine based upon, based upon a very specific Bible verse. And of course, to those familiar with the Christian Bible, it will not surprise you to learn that this verse is from Leviticus. So you know it's going to be absolutely mental. Uh, this is the uh, this is the book in the Bible that uh, Christian homophobes cherry pick to attempt to justify their bigotry. Uh, as much as these hateful bigots are ready to thump their Bibles and tell us all how homosexuality is a sin. Leviticus is also the book that forbids everything from trimming your beard to gossiping to wearing mixed fabrics. And best of all, it also prohibits tattoos. So if you ever meet a Bible bashing homophobe with a crucifix tattoo, you can tell them that they're going to burn in hell just like all those ungodly gay heathens with exquisitely trimmed facial hair. Leviticus prohibits all sorts of different things, and uh, a lot of it is obviously overlooked by people who are happy to, as I say, cherry pick the bits that suit them. And one of the things, one of the one of the prohibitions that is often overlooked uh, in this section of the Bible is the verse that uh, that says, chapter chapter twenty, verse twenty two. <clears throat> if a man shall take his brother's wife, it is an unclean thing. He hath uncovered his brother's nakedness, they shall be childless. So Henry has a read of that and he thinks, bloody brilliant, fantastic. This is, this is perfect here. The Bible forbids a man from marrying his brother's widow. That's just what I did. No wonder I can't have any sons. God's obviously pissed off with me here. And so, right, because according to the Bible, his marriage to Catherine was prohibited. It was ungodly. It, it, was, uh, it was an unclean thing. Henry instructed his Lord Chancellor, Thomas Wolsey, to take the case to the Pope and have him agree to an annulment of this marriage, something that Wolsey completely failed to get done. Wolsey went to Rome with this argument and asked Pope Clement VII to annul the marriage uh, between Catherine and Henry, but the Pope didn't seem so hot on the idea. Now, why is this? There are a couple of reasons. Firstly, the Pope didn't want to seem to be the sort of bloke that would just do favours for kings like that. He was senior to them, not the other way around. Let's not forget that. But perhaps more importantly, the immensely powerful Holy Roman Emperor Charles V was Catherine's nephew, and he may have been leaning on Clement to refuse the annulment so his, uh, his aunt wasn't scorned and humiliated by the English king. Clement deliberated for two years on this issue, and in the meantime, ecclesiastical courts and leading theologians all chimed in with their perspectives on the issue. Uh, very amusingly, Martin Luther, perhaps the most prominent figure of the Protestant Reforma uh, Reformation, he claimed that Henry hadn't broken any biblical rules with his marriage to Catherine. He said that was fine, but that this marriage also didn't prevent him from remarrying as there was nothing in the Bible that prohibited polygamy. In fact, it's largely encouraged, really. But this was not the solution that Henry chose to take. Eventually, in 1529, when Clement came back and refused the annulment, Henry took matters into his own hands. It was bad news for Henry, uh, Clement's refusal. But I'll tell you this, it was even worse news for Wolsey because for his failures, Thomas Wolsey was charged with treason and would have been executed very likely 
had he not died of natural causes before he could have his head cut off. And the reason I tell you this, this is ridiculous, right? The reason I tell you about Thomas Wolsey and his fate is that Thomas Wolsey wasn't the only extremely important advisor to Henry VIII to face capital charges of treason. In fact, he wasn't even the only advisor named Thomas to do so. Throughout his reign, Henry VIII had four different high-ranking advisors all die after being accused of treason, and all of them were named Thomas. We'll come to the others soon enough. We'll get across each and every one of those four Thomases, don't you worry. Anyway, the Pope's refusal, as I say, it made Henry take matters into his own hands. And so in 1530, he banished Catherine from his court and replaced her with a mistress, Anne Boleyn, who he'd been hot on for a long time. And uh, he got ready to marry her instead, which he did secretly in 1532. With the Catholic Church not giving him what he wanted, Henry set up his own court to determine the validity of his marriage to Catherine. And surprise, surprise, this court found the marriage to be null and void. In 1533, the annulment officially took place. Catherine was formally stripped of the title of queen. And Henry's secret marriage to Anne Boleyn was made public and official. And this was the beginning of the end of England as a Catholic nation. Henry rejected the supremacy of the Pope and styled himself as the supreme head of the church and, most amusingly, kept the title he'd been given by the Pope previously, Defender of the Faith. Even today, it is still part of the official titles of the British monarch. Anyway, after having rejected papal supremacy, after having set himself up as the supreme head of, uh, of the church in England, after essentially completely rejecting Catholicism in his realm, as part of the de-Catholicization of England over the coming years, Henry did something that would go on to have enormously important consequences for his realm when he abolished the monasteries and the nunneries throughout England and pillaged their wealth for himself. He badly needed the money while he inherited a lot of money from his dad, who had kept the kingdom shipshape and very economically stable. Henry VIII spent money like there was no tomorrow. So dissolving the monasteries and confiscating their riches and their lands, therefore, this wasn't just a way to throw off papal influence in England, but also fill his coffers. It also changed the fabric of English society as the monks and nuns that lived and worked in all of these monasteries were just taken away from the day-to-day lives of, of, of English people back then. And the lands that they oversaw and, 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 and took care of were confiscated by the throne and, and often given away to a new class of, of wealthy landowners. So the, disso- the dissolution of the monasteries is uh, another very big part of, another very big consequence of the reign of Henry VIII. But again, one that broadly speaking pales in comparison to a lot of the other stuff that took place during his reign. Anyway. In 1534, the English Parliament passed the Acts of Supremacy, and this established Henry, not the Pope, as the head of the church in England officially, which effectively founded a new Christian denomination, Anglicanism, the Church of England. And when I was talking about the far-reaching consequences of Henry VIII's reign, let me tell you this. Today, in 2023, there are estimated to be 110 million Anglicans around the world. It is the third largest Christian communion on the planet. He started something huge. England, with 
the English Reformation had joined the Protestant Reformation that was sweeping through parts of Europe, and the kingdom was well on its way to severing its ties with the Catholic Church altogether. Now, the Pope responded to Henry's defiance and the acts of supremacy by excommunicating him, but in all honesty, that is kind of like trying to send your misbehaving kid to their room after they've already left home. England had left the Catholic Communion, and this was not a penalty that really bothered Henry all that much as he forged a new destiny for his kingdom. And while there was conflict between Catholics and Protestants that would continue in England for a long, long time to come, still still takes place across the United Kingdom to this very day, Henry VIII sealed England's and later Britain's fate by turning it into, broadly speaking, a Protestant nation. Even today, Catholics or those married to Catholics are, by British law, banned from sitting on the British throne. And this all goes back to Henry VIII. Anyway, England's now Protestant. Bugger the Pope, Henry says. Chop off the heads of anyone who disagrees with me. Religious recriminations come along thick and fast for anyone clinging to Catholicism. For instance, Thomas Number 2, the Lord High Chancellor, Thomas More, a faithful Catholic who refused to renounce his faith, refused to convert or even acknowledge Henry as the supreme head of the Church of England. And for this... He was executed. Moore is a very interesting figure. He is the bloke who coined the term utopia. He is the central character in the famous play A Man for All Seasons. And he died a traitor and a heretic. Thomas Number 2 taken out by the headsman's axe. Still two more Thomases to go, of course, but we'll get to them. What about Henry's new wife and his quest for a son and heir? Well, Henry had been a huge fan of Anne Boleyn before they were married, but it turned out that they didn't make for a very happy couple. Anne was, by all accounts, a fiercely intelligent and strong-willed woman, and she refused to just submit to Henry as a mild-mannered, obedient wife. Henry had enjoyed Anne's strength of character when she was his mistress, but didn't care for it all that much when she became his wife, and so the couple swiftly grew less and less fond of one another as the years passed. When Anne gave birth to a daughter, Elizabeth, this didn't help things at all, nor did the miscarriage that she had in 1536 after hearing that Henry had been badly injured after being thrown off a horse. While Henry survived the injury, he was never the same again afterwards. The wound that he received never properly healed. It remained infected and painful for the rest of his life. It prevented him from living the active lifestyle that he had enjoyed, hunting and jousting and doing whatever else, a bit of tennis. And this inactivity then caused Henry to become obese, which only compounded his health issues. He had gout. He ended up being covered in boils and ulcers. He was in constant pain, which made him irritable and difficult to reason with. But anyway, this miscarriage, this was the end of things between Henry and Anne, because he's convinced that she, too, isn't going to produce a son. It's always the woman's fault in these stories, isn't it? And so Henry started to look for ways to give her the boot as well, just as he'd gotten rid of Catherine. And what does the rhyme tell us? Well, divorce, beheaded. No, sorry, hang on. Annulled, beheaded. So it looks like poor old Anne isn't long for this world. Uh, To get rid of poor old Anne Boleyn, Henry trumped up charges of treason and adultery and even incest, just for good measure and had Anne beheaded, along with five other blokes accused of shagging her. 
The evidence that they were convicted on was extremely flimsy, but hey, Henry's the king. He loved chopping people's heads off. What are you going to do? So it's on to the next one for Henry. But before we move on to Jane Seymour, here is one tiny little detail for all the, uh, well, actually nerds. The rhyme says divorce, beheaded, died. We've amended it, obviously. It wasn't a divorce. It was an annulment. So we've, we've amended it to annulled, beheaded, died. But even that isn't correct, strictly speaking, because two days before Anne Boleyn was beheaded, believe it or not, her marriage to Henry was also annulled on the grounds that you you really are not ready for this, right? So so, so Anne was beheaded because she allegedly was off knocking boots with, with other blokes, right? That's, that's the reason that she was killed. The reason that Henry was able to have the marriage annulled before we, she was executed was the fact that he had slept with her sister before he started sleeping with her. So Henry used an affair that he had had to annul a marriage to a woman woman that he then had executed for having an affair. Nothing about a a double standard or anything like that. Oh, no, this was very politically convenient and expedient for Henry to uh, rid himself of uh, of Anne Boleyn in this way. The fact that he had slept with Anne's sister before sleeping with Anne uh, prohibited a relationship between the two of them under canon law. And so the marriage was, as I say, annulled before Anne was executed, meaning technically the rhyme is now annulled, annulled, died. Meaning that now, geez, as we move on to Jane Seymour, she she doesn't have a chance, does she? So with Anne out the way, uh, Henry moves on now to wife number three, this woman I mentioned, Jane Seymour. Uh, He became engaged to her the very day after Anne had her head chopped off. So he wasn't hanging about. Uh, he'd been rooting her for, for quite a while there. She was one of his many mistresses, so he knew what he was getting into. And the next year, after their marriage in 1537, Jane gave birth to a son, Prince Edward. And so Henry now had an heir, and you would think he would be overjoyed. But sadly, his joy was cut short when poor old Jane died from complications surrounding the birth. So while he did have a son and heir, he had lost, most tragically, another wife. But hey, don't worry about that, because if there's anything that Henry VIII taught us, you can always find more wives. In 1540, Henry married Anne of Cleves, and holy moly, wait until you hear the story of this marriage. Henry's chief minister, Thomas, Thomas, Thomas Cromwell, suggested pursuing an alliance with some Protestant Germans in the wake of the English Reformation. Uh, And so he suggested that Henry marry the sister of a bloke whose name was William the Rich, the powerful Duke of Cleves. Anne of Cleves was a 25-year-old woman who, uh, Henry was assured at least, was very good-looking indeed, as well as being generally quiet and gentle, a perfect candidate, in other words, for the open position of Queen of England. The famous painter Hans Holbein the Younger was commissioned to paint her portrait for Henry so he could have a squiz at her and see what he reckoned. He's essentially just on Tinder at this point. They can't take photographs, so they get an artist to paint a portrait, take it back to Henry, and then he can just swipe left or right on it. Anyway, Holbein comes back with this portrait and, oh my goodness, have a look at this woman. Absolute stunner, mate. She is bloody 
gorgeous. When Henry's looking at the, at the portrait, everyone's looking over his shoulder going, oh, mate, go on, Hendo, look at her. Bloody hell, she's brilliant, right? So Henry Henry goes, oh, mate, yeah, absolutely, no worries. Get her over here. I'll, I'll marry her in a heartbeat. And Anne makes the journey from the continent over to England. And when she arrives, Henry is... Uh, not impressed. Not impressed at all. He was essentially catfished. Now, look, I don't want to knock poor old Anna Cleves here. She's done nothing wrong off to marry a king. Of course you'd go along. But it seems that Holbein may have been uh, a little generous to her in painting this portrait. But it was too late to back out of the wedding. Henry needed the alliance with William. And so the marriage went ahead for about six months. After marrying her in January 1540, Henry had the marriage annulled on the grounds of non-consummation. They never rooted, apparently, and this meant that Anne didn't have her head chopped off. She was quietly shipped off to the English countryside, given a residence or two and a generous pension, and that was that for her. So again, annulled, not divorced. So right now we're at annulled, annulled, died, and then annulled again. So the rhyme really isn't holding up. As for uh, as for Thomas Cromwell, well, you can probably imagine what's going to happen next. He's a senior advisor to King Henry VIII of England, and his name is Thomas. So, what what kind of a chance do you think he has? He was charged with treason for uh, misrepresenting the suitability of Anne of Cleves as the next Queen of England, and so he was beheaded. Thomas number three and wife number four both out of the way. Henry very quickly moved on to his next wife, a very young woman named Catherine Howard, just 17 years old. She was another mistress of his who he married on the very same day that Cromwell was executed on the 28th of July, 1540. So what are we up to here? We've got annulled, annulled, died, annulled, beheaded. Oh, dear. This marriage barely lasted 18 months. Catherine was said to have to be having an affair, and Henry VIII charged his senior advisor and Archbishop of Canterbury to investigate a bloke named Thomas Cranmer. Uh Uh-oh, here's Thomas number four. Is he going to last? Well, after investigating, Cranmer claimed that Catherine Howard had indeed committed adultery. Although how true that is, I'm not sure. These poor women, they really had a a rough old go of it. Uh, Henry's off shagging anything that moves, but even a shaky accusation of a woman being adulterous and and they're off to the headsman. And uh, yeah, poor old Catherine was indeed stripped of her title. She was executed after being found guilty of treasonous adultery. In early 1542, she had her head lopped off her shoulders. And the next year, 1543, Henry took his sixth and final wife, Catherine Parr. And I'm happy to say that Parr seemed to manage things very well with Henry. He had become estranged from his daughters, Mary and Elizabeth. She helped him patch things up with them. Uh, So much so, in fact, that they were officially included in the line of succession after his young son, Edward. Uh, And these inclusions would go on to have incredibly important consequences for England and indeed the British Isles. Henry hoped to marry Edward, his son, to Mary, Queen of Scots, the daughter of King James V of Scotland, and thereby unite England and Scotland. More territorial ambition for him. Uh, And and throughout the 1540s, he even fought a war with Scotland to try to make this wedding happen, a conflict that is known very appropriately as the rough wooing. Of course, in later years, Mary, Queen of Scots, would end up coming into conflict with another one of Henry's children, uh, his daughter Elizabeth. But that's another story. Episode 19, get across it. Anyway, 
After marrying Catherine Parr in 1543, Henry fought the Scots to the north. He fought the French to the south, as is only appropriate for an English king. But he didn't have a huge amount of luck in either arena. And, and part of this, I have to say, is because of his terrible health. Henry's marriage to Catherine Parr didn't last, but uh, this time it was nothing to do with her and everything to do with him, because by the time we get to the 1540s, Henry really is not in good shape. He's enormously overweight. He's riddled with gout. He's covered in pus-filled sores. This bloke's an absolute mess. He probably had a whole host of other medical issues. People have attempted to reach across the centuries and diagnose him with everything from McLeod syndrome to scurvy. But the bottom line is this. He really wasn't in good shape, and you could tell. His final years saw him crankier and angrier and more hot-headed and more difficult to reason with than ever before. But then, finally, his poor health got the better of him. And on the 28th of January, 1547, Henry VIII died. Henry lived much of his life as an intelligent, fit, handsome, and very horny king. But he died as an angry, overweight, irrational, but still very horny mess. Catherine Parr outlived him. And so the final iteration of the rhyme, now that we've corrected it, is annulled, annulled, died, annulled, beheaded, survived. Doesn't quite have the same ring to it after we've chopped and changed it like this, but hey, at least it still rhymes. Anyway. Henry was succeeded by the son that he'd had with Jane Seymour, but Edward VI wasn't on the throne for very long. He died in 1553 when he was just 15 years old, and then he in turn was succeeded by another one of Henry's children, his half-sister Mary, who was a devout Catholic. She attempted to undo much of her father's reformation of the Anglican Church, but then she died as well, and she was replaced by her half-sister Elizabeth, who was a Protestant through and through, just like her old man. Like her father before her, Elizabeth re-entrenched Protestantism into English daily life, and when she died, she was succeeded by the son of Mary, Queen of Scots, James VI and I, the first of the Stuarts. And so ultimately, Henry's hopes that Scotland and England would be united did end up being fulfilled, just not in the way that he had perhaps hoped. In any case, Henry's reign and the decisions that he made during it were unbelievably significant, charting a new course for England at the time directly before its rise to global hegemony. Most significant of all of these was, of course, breaking England away from the Catholic Church with the establishment of the Church of England and Anglicanism, which remains to this very day, as I said, the third largest Christian communion in the world. Henry also, rather obviously, was a firm believer in the divine right of kings, styling himself as the supreme head of the church and the defender of the faith, which was his justification to expand royal authority throughout his realm. While England and later Britain never really accepted monarchical absolutist rule as some other European nations did, such as France, for instance, Henry changed the landscape of English politics by asserting his power as king and refusing to accept the authority of anyone at all. Not the Pope, not the Parliament, no one and nothing. And then, of course, there's the dissolution of the monasteries, there's the fate of Ireland and Wales, there's a complicated succession that dominated English politics as it rose to become a world power. The legacy of Henry VIII is simply enormous, and today... 
Britain still feels the effects of Henry's reign. It is overwhelmingly a Protestant country that that still carries with it this deeply entrenched sense of, of independence, a refusal to accept the authority of anyone over it. Uh, I, I mean, look at what's happened in, in Britain in recent years, right? Just as Henry proudly threw off the influence of Rome and the Pope, cloth-eared Brexiteers have proudly thrown off the influence of the EU and Brussels within just the last decade. Additionally, as strange as it sounds, Henry's expansion of royal authority then led to the restrictions that were placed on royal authority over the years by the British or the English and British, then British Parliament, authority that has dwindled to see the British royal family become little more than very expensive figureheads. But the point I'm making here is that Henry VIII set England down the path it took to become Britain and then later the United Kingdom to become the constitutional monarchy that it is today. So despite the fact that he ruled England over 500 years ago, the legacy of Henry VIII is still alive and well today. He remains to this very day one of the most famous kings, if not the most famous king in English and British history, a monumentally influential figure in the history of the British Isles. But you're sitting there and thinking, well, hang on, mate, all right, just one second, sure, whatever, bugger all that. Don't you bloody go wrapping up the podcast without tying up that last loose thread you've left here. What happened to Thomas Cranmer, the fourth and final Thomas? He wasn't executed, he was still alive when Henry died. I thought you said they all faced capital charges of treason. And so they did, exalted listener. I wouldn't lie to you. It's just that Thomas Cranmer faced them not from Henry, but from his daughter, Mary, the so-called Bloody Mary. She she continued the, by now, family tradition of putting high-ranking government officials named Thomas to death because he was a Protestant and she was a Catholic. Can I make it any more obvious? Thomas Cranmer was, like so many other Protestants under Mary, burnt at the stake in 1556 as a treasonous heretic. And that was the end of of Thomas number four. But that's it. That's all she wrote today, sports fans. That is the story of Henry VIII and his six wives and the enormous influence he had on English affairs, British affairs, European affairs, world affairs, really. At this stage, at this point in history in the early 20, in the early 21st century, it is very difficult to detach British history from world history as we uh, are in this post-colonial period, the period after Britannia ruled the waves as it once did as a, as a global hegemonic power. And I do hope you enjoyed learning uh, a little bit more about Henry VIII and why he's considered to be such an important figure in uh, in history. And I, I hope you enjoyed some of the more ridiculous aspects of his story because, who boy, there were a lot of them. Anyway, um, that's that for another episode Another episode of half Us History. Thanks for being part of this one. If you want to get in touch, of course, you certainly can. HalfHouseHistory.net is the website and there's a contact form there. You can write in just like Cooper Spence, just like Luke Mashin did. Uh, with your suggestion for a topic, I read every single email that I get. Of course, I'm not able to reply to all of them, unfortunately. Uh, and uh, it's it's great to see what people have cooked up, what uh, what little tidbits they've come across and, and shared with me. So thank you so much to all the people that are uh, that are writing in, and thank you so much to all the listeners who are tuning in, coming back after maybe having listened to uh, their first episode recently. A ton of new listeners coming in to enjoy the show. Well. 
maybe not enjoy the show, but at least listen to it. And hey, that's all that matters. Got to get those numbers up. Tell your friends, tell your enemies, tell people about whom you feel largely ambivalent. Uh, we got merch, halfhistory.net. Find the, the link there to the merch. Uh, you can support the show on Patreon, of course. A big thank you to all of the exalted patrons uh, who are supporting me week in and week out, gaining access to all sorts of behind-the-scenes stuff as they uh, as they uh, they keep the show afloat. Uh, thank you so much to each and every one of them. Uh, but that's it. We're going to uh, gonna wrap things up now, of course, with a question posed on Reddit. This one comes to us from Redditor Caitlin Snep, who's got a question about one of Henry VIII's wives here. <clears throat> If she died giving birth to Henry VIII's heir, how did Jane Seymour manage to play Bond Girl Solitaire in the 1973 James Bond film Live and Let Die? <laughs> <laughs>